This is Steve Madden, the author of The Cobbler on Books on Pod with Trey Elling. Have a listen. Hello, readers. Andre Gregory is a theater director, writer, and actor. Most famously, he co-wrote and co-starred in My Dinner with Andre, along with his good friend Wallace Shawn. And he's just written a book about it all. This is not my memoir is what it's called. And he joins me now to talk about that. Andre, thank you so much for the time today. How you doing? Well, except for a very painful knee, which I'm going to get operated on, I feel great. Well, good luck with the knee surgery and glad that you're feeling pretty good. Otherwise, Andre, you were born in France before your family moved to the UK and then eventually the United States. What is your recollection of taking a boat from the UK to Canada when you were five years old? Well, the war had just broken out and we got the last boat out of England for the United States. And there was a sister ship that was sailing about a mile away from us. I was about five years old. And I remember that the sister ship was torpedoed by the Germans. And as a little boy, I could see people drowning in the water. And we picked up survivors. And there were hundreds and hundreds of survivors sleeping in the corridors of our ship. And almost every day, alarms would go off and all of us would have to rush for a lifeboat and the lifeboat would get let partially over the side. It was a lifeboat drill. So it was pretty scary. Even at five, you had enough awareness to understand that that was a pretty serious situation. Oh, Oh, absolutely. And I guess when I was four, I would be sitting around in the kitchen listening to my parents who were Jewish talking about the advance of the Nazis and should they emigrate to England, should they emigrate to America, to Australia. So it was a very, very frightening time. Through most of the 1940s, your family spent summers in Southern California hosting parties that included some of the biggest names in film at that time, including Abbott Costello, the Marx Brothers, George Burns, Greta Garbo, Fred Astaire, and Errol Flynn. What does Errol Flynn have to do with one of the few victories that you truly felt as a kid? Oh, well, that's in the book. When we went back to New York in the winter, I was boasting about the fact not only that I knew Errol Flynn, but that I'd seen him kissing my mother behind a bush. (laughs) And none of the kids believed me, and they would start to beat up on me. So my mother got this idea of having a lunch for one guy in the school or the school president or something like that, at which Errol Flynn would appear. So my reputation would be saved at school. He was invited for one o'clock. By 2.30, he still wasn't there. My reputation was in the balance. (laughs) And my mother hopped into a taxi, went to the Waldorf Astoria, where he was staying. They wouldn't let her up to his room. So she claimed to the desk clerk that she was pregnant with his child, which might have been true. And that if they didn't let her up to his room, she would call the newspapers, create a scandal. So she went into his room. She was let in. 
he was in bed, probably with a hooker and a hangover. <laughs> and she got him into the shower, doused him in cold water, got him dressed, put him in a cab, took him home. He signed an autographed copy of his picture for the school kid who was there to see whether or not I was a dastardly liar or not. And my reputation was saved. <laughs> One of the few nice things my mother did for me except to bring me into the world. Early on in the book, you write that there are three crucial actions in our lives. Meeting a partner that you are hopefully able to spend most of your life with, choosing a vocation, and finding a spiritual teacher. When did your destiny as a storyteller become apparent to you? I was a pariah at school. That's a whole other story. Hmm. Nobody would talk to me. Nobody would invite me over. People would walk the other way when I appeared. But I did have one friend called Gillespie, and we would go for long walks in the park, in Central Park, and I would invent stories for hours on end, which entertained him, and I found I loved the invention of these tales. But I do want to point out that the stories in the book, and there are quite a few, are not only remarkable, they are true. And one of the blessings of my life has been that my life has been almost like a fairy tale. It's been incredible. No doubt about that. And that includes obviously being surrounded by movie stars when you were a kid during your summers in Southern California. Despite this, though, you weren't as inspired by film as much as you were by radio, even getting to see what the creation process looked like in person with the Sherlock Holmes Hour. What was it that you loved so much about radio? What I loved about radio, and this had, I think, a big influence, oh God, 50 years later or something, on the creation of my dinner with Andre, is that radio, with its sound effects and its emphasis on the mystery of the spoken word allows you, the listener, or you, the viewer, to imagine everything for yourself. It doesn't tell you what to see the way the movies obviously do. It activates and opens your own imagination. In other words, people often say, oh my God, how could my dinner with Andre have been successful? It's only two guys sitting at a table talking. But the talk involves storytelling. So in a way, my dinner with Andre, even though we never leave that table, is more visual or as visual as Lawrence of Arabia or uh, Bridge on the River Kwai. Because when I talk about going into the desert on camels with a Buddhist monk in my dinner with Andre, you see it in your own mind. And every you, every viewer sees it in a different way. So radio was onto something that sadly has disappeared. When and why did you first come to understand the therapeutic power of acting and theater and that theater was something that you really didn't want to live without in your life? When I was 12 years old, I was accused by my school of doing something that I'd never done. I was innocent. But the whole school, the teachers, the principal, they all turned against me. <laughs> and I became an outcast 
all alone in that school, convicted of something that I'd never done. The one thing that they couldn't take away from me was the school play, because when they ostracized me, it was early December, and the Shakespeare play was going to go on in mid-December. I'd learned all the lines. They couldn't give it to another actor, although I'm sure they would have loved to. (laughs) And when I went on stage, I was playing Petruchio in The Taming of the Shrew, a part with a lot of anger in it. And I looked out into the auditorium and I saw all these SOBs who had punished me for something (laughs) I'd never done. And I was filled with such rage. I knew how to act. I knew how to put passion into the word, which was a huge relief because I'd always been a somewhat repressed, quiet guy. So it was great to find a medium through which I could express some of my most passionate and, in a way, forbidden emotions. Fast-forwarding just a little bit now, you attend college at Harvard, an experience that you weren't crazy about, and you do detail that in the book. After graduating in 1956, you tried to enroll in Yale Drama School. How did the dean respond to your inquiry? That's a story that I love to tell to young people. I was dying to go to Yale Drama School, and I was interviewed by the legendary dean who I think had created the drama school. And in the middle of the interview, he said to me, you know, it's very hard to interview a young person because a young person doesn't yet have lines of experience in their face. But every once in a while, I do interview somebody who so clearly has absolutely no talent whatsoever that I have to beg you, don't go into the theater. (laughs) The theater's hard enough if you're talented. You have no talent. Become a businessman or a doctor. And so I got on the train back to New York, tears pouring down my cheeks, and a few days later, I joined the Marines. How did you land your first paid theater gig, and what did that job entail? My very first theater gig was an assistant director for a commercial television company working on maiden form bra commercials, which for a young man was thrilling because of all the models. (laughs) And I even got to take out a potential Miss America. That was my first paid job. You visited East Berlin in the late 1950s. What was that like? Oh, it was very scary because I went to East Berlin to visit the internationally famous Berliner Ensemble, the Theater of Bertolt Brecht, which was maybe one of the three or four greatest theater companies of all time. Brecht, of course, was the author of the Three Penny Opera, as well as other amazing plays. But to get into East Berlin, you took the subway from West Berlin. And when you got off at Friedrichstrasse, the first stop, which was in East Germany, you got a body search by these thugs, these terrifying thugs that were East German border guards. East Berlin was a ravaged city 
It hadn't been rebuilt like West Berlin after the Second World War. You could turn a corner and suddenly find yourself at the foot of a Soviet tank. And there were no lights in the city at night, you know, no street lamps, no cars. The only lights came from theater marquees or from the one hotel that there was in East Germany. The walls were still pockmarked with bullet holes from the battle for Berlin, where the Soviet army came in and defeated the Nazis. It was grim. There was nothing in the stores. There were no restaurants. It was a sad and frightening city. After your time at the internationally famous Berliner Ensemble, where you said you did learn most of what you know about directing theater, you end up returning to New York City and working at the Phoenix Theater. The theater held a fundraising benefit with performances by numerous jazz musicians that were very well known at the time. This included the final public performance by the great Billie Holiday. What was that like? Oh, it was amazing. You know, she was in the prison hospital. I think she had cirrhosis of the liver, maybe from drugs, and she was dying. But she wanted to perform, and the city didn't want to let her out of the hospital. So the producers called the mayor of New York and got an agreement that she would be brought to the theater in an ambulance. Two of us stage managers held her up by each arm, and she sang the very last song she was ever going to sing, got back in the ambulance, went back to the hospital, and died. You continued honing your craft at the actor's studio. While there, you directed a scene from Bernard Shaw's St. Joan in front of Marilyn Monroe, Paul Newman, and others, an experience that you call one of the most awful scenes in your life. Why? But you see, even when you mention it, I think, oh my God, what a miraculous life I've led. Right. My very first scene in the theater for any kind of audience, and it included the likes of Marilyn Monroe, you know. How did I, Andre Gregory, ever end up living such a spectacular life? But what was awful about it was that Strasbourg, who some of you might have seen as Jaime Roth, playing the role of Jaime Roth in The Godfather. He was a great teacher. And in front of that amazing audience of celebrities, he said, I would like to know if you call that directing. And if so, I would like to know why. (laughs) It was quite aggressive. The tears came into my eyes. I couldn't stop the tears going down my cheeks. I ran out of the room. I went into a kind of depression and it took me months to return to the studio. It was a bad beginning to my directing career. Now you move on from the actor's studio and start the Theater of the Living Arts in Philly. Something changed significantly between your first and second seasons there. What was it and why? Well, it's a great story. I found a play called Beckleck by Rochelle Owens, who became famous off-Broadway for a play about a man who makes love to his pig. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it was the 60s. Anything was possible. And I just loved this play. It was sort of like a technicolor wet dream 
by Conrad Hilton, who created the Hilton Hotels. It was about a suburban housewife whose husband is a kind of milk toast. And she goes to this surreal, dreamlike Africa, an Africa of the psyche, an Africa of the dreams. And she begins by having sex with the natives. And then her appetite for experience grows and grows till <laughs> she's finally having sex with animals and killing natives. And I mean, this was a young Andre Gregory. I want, I want <laughs> to say he may have been flamboyant, but that's not me anymore. And we had a theater in an African-American ghetto slum of Philadelphia. And we brought our sort of comfy upper middle class subscription audience into the theater. Instead of going through the front door, they were taken down a back alley by Watusis, who are descended from Africans who are nearly seven feet tall, six feet five or something like that. And they were taken down this dark, scary alley. They went into the backstage. There was a large totem covered with condoms <laughs> filled with grape juice, and they were given a hatchet. Are you still following me? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and they would have to chop open a condom that would spill blood down the totem, and then they would be given a mask to go into the theater. So they became the natives of this African land themselves by wearing these African masks. And... The stage was just one large mud pit with little alleys leading through the mud. I can't believe anymore that I actually did anything like this. And about a week before we were supposed to open, the ASPCA closed this down because the Haitian musicians, they discovered, had been sacrificing a goat every night <laughs> against the back wall of the theater. And there was a stage direction saying that Beckleck forces her husband to go through the rite of elephantiasis. And the stage direction was his leg swells up into giant proportions <laughs> with Chagall-like colors. Now, how do you do that as a director? So the way I solved that was by having the Afro-American dance ensemble who were part of the production, they were Black Panthers for the most part. And they were dancing, wearing pretty much nothing but penis sheaths covered with election campaign buttons and nipples covered with God knows what. And as they danced to these voodoo drums, the three haystacks that were upstage would begin to rise like great erections and so, so much was going on on the stage. You didn't notice that somebody just came and put this fake leg on the actor. And the greatest moment was there was a woman in her 60s, I think, who was paralyzed from the waist down. She'd done all kinds of therapy, psychotherapy, physiotherapy, to help her walk again. They couldn't discover why she couldn't walk. But she was in a wheelchair, and rather than take her down the frightening alley, we took her through the front door of the theater, put her wheelchair in an aisle with some books under the wheels so it wouldn't slip, 
And she was so outraged and offended by this reference to an actor's leg that she simply rose out of her wheelchair, <laughs> stalked up the aisle, and left the theater. And her son started shouting, oh my God, mummy's walking, mummy's walking. <laughs> and he actually sent me a lovely letter saying they'd been trying to cure her for 12 years unsuccessfully. So my theater had become a theater of miracles, a theater of healing. I mean, you want to talk about creating an interactive experience, one that leads a paralyzed person to walking. I'd say that uh, you did a pretty good job there. Despite that, you were fired and pretty unsure of what to do next. But then out of the blue, you receive a phone call from the great Gregory Peck. How did that conversation go? He had been made the head of the board of a theater in L.A. that wanted to do theater for adults, teenagers from underprivileged backgrounds, and have an interracial company of African-Americans, Hispanics, Asian-Americans. And that sounded pretty interesting, even though I was exhausted because I didn't tell you that when my board of directors fired me in Philadelphia, I wouldn't go. So they called the police. They brought a paddy wagon and they forcibly ejected me from my own theater. My gosh. Took me across the state line and left me in New Jersey. What? But anyway, I was exhausted. I didn't want to take the job, but I did. And the first production that I directed of Moliere's Tartuffe got the official seal of condemnation put on it by the Catholic Church. Thousands of parents who had teenagers watching this production of Moliere complained to the school board. And yet again, I was thrown out of one of my own theaters. Well, and this is a result of you deciding to put on The Glass Menagerie by Tennessee Williams, and you cast a black actor as the lead, and you end up facing a ton of pressure because of this, including from Gregory Peck. What happened between you and Peck as a result of your refusal to recast the lead? Because I wouldn't recast the lead, and because the board just didn't like the idea of a black gentleman caller in The Glass Menagerie, a long conflict with the board and with Peck developed and Peck called me over to his house. At that time, I think he was in his early fifties, a big man, very strong. And he said, your problem, Andre, with actors is you treat them too nicely. So they give bad performances. And I said, and your problem, Greg, is that when you were young, you didn't have a director like me. So instead of becoming an actor, you became a wooden Indian. And with that, he socked me in the face. And down I went. What a life. My goodness. Yeah, well, that, I think that's one of the things in the book that is entertaining because this man has been through amazing things. But it's also a hymn, if you like, to how important it is to be persevering and dedicated to what you do. Talent is important, but it isn't as important as perseverance and hanging in there 
no matter what obstacles you come up against. It's a fantastic lesson. Why were your career and life changed at the Edinburgh Festival in Scotland in August of 1968? Uh, because I saw the work of Jerzy Grotowski, the Polish theater director, who I think was the Michelangelo of theater. There never was anyone like him. There'll probably never be anyone like him again. And it changed my life. It changed my life because it showed me that theater doesn't have to be just entertaining. It can also be great art, like great paintings, great novels. And that if you work with enough dedication, you can just do something that is greater than anything that's ever been seen before. So his work had an effect on me that lasted forever. You even studied with Grotowski and the Polish Lab Theater in France. After that, you returned to the States from this workshop, and a group that you had previously started, the Manhattan Project Theater Troupe, decided to do a sort of mashup of Alice in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass. But inspired by this trip to France, you wanted to do this performance in a stripped-down version of the theater that was really nothing more than one light, a table, maybe some chairs, no props, no costumes, or anything else that makes theater, well, theater. Why did you decide to go about it like this, and how did you make it work? Well, I knew from working with Krotowski that there was a war going on between film and theater, and it was a war that you could say film was winning because film has so many astounding technical possibilities at its fingertips. So if theater is trying to be like film and building amazing sets and costumes and lights and music, trying to blow your socks off, it's not gonna win the war with film. Film will win. So in order to stay in that war with film, you have to ask yourself, what is absolutely unique to theater? And to answer that question, you ask, what can the theater do without? Well, it can do without sets, it can do without costumes, it can do without music. The only thing that theater must have is one actor, at least, and one audience member, at least. And then the task is to create an actor who is so astounding that they can stagger you simply with their being on stage. They don't need the backup of sets and costumes and everything. You began asking me a question about radio. I was creating in a way, an extension of radio, but with amazing actors who could do anything. You know, in Alice in Wonderland, Alice is sitting by the bank of the river with her sister, and suddenly a white rabbit runs by, saying, oh, my ears and whiskers, I'm going to be late. Oh, my ears and whiskers, and runs down a rabbit hole. Well, if you want to show Alice falling down a rabbit hole, how are you going to do that without a camera, without tricks, without splicing, without editing? And that's what we did. Read the book to find out how. 
Why was the Shiraz Festival in Iran your favorite place to present Alice during its four-year run? Well, you ask great questions. It was wonderful because we performed in an old fruit packing factory. They sat on fruit crates covered with Persian carpets. It was surrounded by a wall. There was a tree growing out of the cement at the center. In other words, we created a wonderland for the audience. Hmm. There were audience members, workers who couldn't pay to get into the theater, who were sitting on the wall and sitting in the trees, as well as the highly privileged guests of the Empress of Iran. And on opening night, to protect the Empress, for every member of the audience sitting, there were two Secret Service members sitting in dark glasses with attache cases filled with submachine guns. And there was a machine. <laughs> I can't believe I lived this life. I must be inventing it all. It's incredible. And there was a machine gun on the wall behind the audience. You know, this was a complete dictatorship. And every member of the audience coming into the theater was given a body search and a rectal search to protect the Empress. And then after the performance, the Empress invited us to her summer palace where we sat on a balcony looking at folk dances on a lake, which had all been staged for us. And we smoked Havana cigars and ate golden caviar, which was <laughs> Empress's special caviar. That's well, that was pretty astounding, wouldn't you say? Uh, that's incredible. And inevitably, your time with the Manhattan Project comes to an end when the troupe breaks up in 1975. You actually don't direct theater for the next 12 years. At one point during your 12 years of roaming through this proverbial desert, you were literally buried alive. Why and what was that like? And I ask this as somebody with claustrophobia because the mere thought sounds terrifying to me. Oh, well, I don't want to spoil it for the reader. So it's one of the high points of the book and one of the most frightening points of the book. If you want to know how Andre was buried alive, read This Is Not My Memoir. So I'm going to keep your audience in suspense on that one. That's fair enough, sir. What were the origins of what would eventually become the film My Dinner with Andre? Well, the origins was that my friend Wally knew that I'd been buried alive, going through the Tunisian Sahara on a camel. You know, if your listeners aren't interested in this book already, that would be amazing. <laughs> I mean, just think how amazing all of this sounds. And he called me up one day and he said, you know, I know you've been going through all this stuff and you're 10 years older than me. I don't want to go through it when I'm your age. So how about the two of us just sitting and talking about what you've been through so I can learn from you and I don't have to go through the same thing? And he said, I think we could maybe make it into a Talking Heads TV show. And so for two years, we began the work of storytelling and crafting a screenplay to make a movie that clearly, even if we could ever get it made, which was doubtful, nobody would ever want to go see. Who would want to go see two unknown actors talking in a restaurant for two hours? But we made it and it became a classic. 
And you literally had to memorize hundreds of pages of dialogue. How difficult was that? Oh, my God. It was. I had a job during the day. I forget what I was doing, but it meant getting up at five in the morning every single day, making myself a strong cup of coffee and learning these lines. And it was awful because I'd learned three pages and then I'd have to learn the fourth page and I would start forgetting the second page. It was like quicksand, but I kept at it. It took nine months to learn the longest role in the history of film or theater, but I did it. Yes, you did. And you referenced your friend Wally. For people who are unfamiliar, that's Wallace Shawn. And if you don't know the name, you know the actor. He is best known for The Princess Bride, the inconceivable role that he played in The Princess Bride. What does your friend and colleague Wallace Shawn mean to you? He's my dearest friend. He's my brother. And he's my partner of 40 years. He is incredibly dear to me. And I know him as well or even better than I've ever known anyone in my life. I've directed three or four of his plays. We spent years in rehearsal rooms working together. I treasure him. I completely treasure him. And you also said that the movie does eventually get made and it does turn into a classic. Prior to that, though, after it is fully formed and done, it premieres at the Telluride Film Festival before making its way to some other film fest that year. Although the initial reviews weren't very good, when did you sense the critical tide turning for My Dinner with Andre? It was shocking to us because we'd had a standing ovation at the New York Film Festival We'd been carried on the shoulders of the crowds at the Telluride Film Festival. We were sure we had a big, big hit. And then the reviews came out and they were all bad. I think Time Magazine said something like, this is an amateurish film by two people who are not actors, boring us for two hours with their inane conversation. The New York Times said, it's a Winnie the Pooh kind of fable if you like that thing, which I don't, said the critic. (laughs) So almost all the reviews were bad. It opened in four theaters. We were getting about eight people per theater on a Saturday night, and we were going down the tubes. We were finished. And then Siskel and Ebert, you remember Siskel and Ebert? Oh, yeah. They had seen the movie in Telluride, and... They not only gave it a rave review in one of their programs, in the second they spent an hour talking about my dinner with Andre, and then they named it with Reds, the best film of the year. And suddenly, instead of four theaters that were about to close us out, there were 200 theaters across the country that wanted the film. And we were a hit, a huge hit. You said that the only role that you're proud of playing is as John the Baptist in Scorsese's The Last Temptation of Christ. Why is that? Well, it's because it's a great performance in a great role with a great director. You know, who could ask for anything more? I hope if you haven't seen the movie, you will, and you'll see the performance. But, you know, 
playing a character like John the Baptist or Christ or Michelangelo, you know, characters who are embedded in the imaginations of millions of people, it's very, very difficult. You can't be phony about it. You have to become John the Baptist. And I think I did. How was entering your 80s like graduating from college? (laughs) You ask great questions. Well, when you graduate from college, you're terrified often of where you're going to go and what you're going to do and what kind of a job you're going to get and how you're going to spend your life. When you enter your 80s, you know that your time is limited and that within however many years, not many, you will face the great unknown of dying. So it's a huge leap into the unknown. And even though the unknown can be fine, we never like going into the unknown (laughs) because it's unknown. (laughs) Andre, I'm a little bit obsessed with the art of storytelling, considering that you are one of the great storytellers of our time. What is the key to a good story? God knows. (laughs) You You just either know how to do it or you don't. I know that sometimes having some people over for dinner Somebody will tell a long story, and the material is great, but the storytelling is kind of boring. But I don't know where I learned it. I just knew how to do it. Andre Gregory is a theater director, writer, and actor. Most famously, he co-wrote and co-starred in My Dinner with Andre, along with his good friend Wallace Shawn. And he's just written a book about it all. This is not my memoir. Andre, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this book. Oh, it's I who thank you, sir, for your time. And thanks to you for listening today. A reminder that you can hear all of our episodes at booksonpod.com or by searching Books on Pod with Trey Elling wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please do leave a five-star rating and review. Helps us grow the show. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod. <laughs>